Our goal, and a lot of people working in this space, is not to see how humans live longer. Let me correct that. It's about how do you live just as long but remain functional as long as possible for whatever year. If we were to expand in the US uh, and across the developed world, healthy period of our life just by two years is a several trillion dollar economic uptick. Okay, so there's a major reason for this. Welcome to season one, episode three of Delve, a podcast from McGill University's Dizotel Faculty of Management where we'll hear from management researchers and practitioners as they explore the latest ecological, social, and economic challenges that we face as a society. I'm your host, Mo Akif, and today we're going to talk about aging. In 2018, for the first time in history, people aged 65 and older outnumbered children under 5 years of age globally. Here's another interesting figure from the UN. There are 703 million people aged 65 or older on the planet today. And by 2050, that number will reach 1.5 billion. Population aging is becoming one of the greatest social transformations of our time. But with new challenges come new opportunities to innovate. Today, we're joined by Dr. Mahmoud Khan, former vice chairman of PepsiCo, termed CEO of Life Biosciences, a biotech startup that is changing the culture around aging through cutting-edge research solutions. In discussion with Laurette Dubay, McGill University Professor of Marketing and Director of the McGill Center for the Convergence of Health and Economics, they'll explore how stakeholders across sectors are partnering to create new interventions and products that manage the aging process like never before. Before starting the discussion with Mahmoud, I would like to frame a bit uh, why I'm here tonight, why I'm pleased to be here, and uh, why I believe that we will have a fascinating discussion, hopefully, with outcome. Uh, my lifetime, I've been really to bring together uh, various disciplines, various sectors that are needed if we are to tweak what we do in our everyday life as individuals, as well as business, as government and society, so that we reap the good benefits of modernity without necessarily having to pay the price that we are having with some of the challenges that are the objects of Delft currently. So that's the reason why I'm pleased to be here. Now, why Mahmoud here as being the person on the planet that is the best to talk about what we will be talking? Uh, I have known Mahmoud since 2008 when uh, he gave his first formal uh, public talk as PepsiCo chief scientist officer here. He was just at the time uh, out of Mayo Clinic as a lead scientist there. He was the first ever, I believe, chief scientist officer uh, in a CPG food. Um, and he laid out at the time uh, the plan, very ambitious but very pragmatic also. Uh, how can there be a real transformation 
of the supply, the, the product portfolio and so on toward more nutrition. And now in this role as uh, uh, in this new biotech uh, consortium, I will let him explain a bit more later, I think it is opening a whole uh, new perspective of how can we bring uh, the science of biology and the science of understanding human uh, behavior and so on to see can we uh, reduce uh, the suffering that comes with aging, uh, because it happened at some point in life, uh, but also uh, make this lifelong uh, wellness a real uh, reality? Uh, and so, Mahmoud, uh, the first question here, uh, the first theme that we are addressing is aging as a challenge for individual, for science, and for uh, society. Uh, we have here this diagram from the UN that shows the aging population uh, over uh, where we are now and moving to 2050 and beyond, where uh, the uh, the population of aging is increasing proportionally more than other uh, sector. But 2050 is also where the world will be at uh, uh, 9 billion. So can you start briefly uh, unpacking that multifaceted complexity that is aging? Look, we have, uh, we have had the luxuries of humanity for almost all of our existence, where there have been more young people to take care of a few old people up until now. And what isn't shown on this statistic is one that I think is even more challenging, which is this current decade, this year, last year, in the developed world, Western Europe, North America, Canada, Japan, uh, Singapore, Australia, you look at all these countries, there are more people now in those countries over the age of 60 than there are under the, under the age of five. If you just think about that for a second, it isn't just the number of older people. The fact is every one of these countries as a society, including Canada, which is somewhat of a pay-forward society, the young take care of the elderly, and there's always been more young people working than there were older people to take care of. Well, guess what? Now that's changed. As a result, this is not just a health burden and a disease burden. It is a major economic burden for which no country yet has figured out a solution. Those countries that have a high immigration rate and then the fact that immigrants are young are able to offset some of that, but that is not sufficient because as the emerging world and developing world, economies are getting better there are fewer and fewer people migrating, etc. So first, it's a major economic challenge. We don't have enough people who can take care. Second is the cost of taking care of this doubling population. If you think about it, we're going to double. We've doubled in the last 30 years. We're going to double again the next 30 years. And then we're going to add another billion people. And so if you take about 9 billion people, one-third of them will be elderly. And that will continue to grow. So the disease burden is actually breaking our health system's capability to take care of it. Coming back to your question, that requires, at the top, a re-look at our policy and what our policies are around, and a rethink of our financial pension and insurance systems, which are currently operating under a model that was built 50, 60, 100 years ago. And then the third 
is the way in which medicine approaches taking care of the elderly, which is very much what symptoms can I patch, what band-aids can I take care of in addressing, and in essence watching a decline and hoping we can slow down some of that decline, but usually, and I'll end with this statement, if we think about somebody living to be 80, 85 years old, our system assumes that we will spend about 20 years of that time period in significant decline and about 30 years, the first 10 years of that, some decline. And it's sort of accepted as, you know, you've all heard your parents and grandparents say, well, I'm just getting old. And so there's an assumption. Our goal, and a lot of people working in this space, is not to see how humans live longer. Let me correct that. It's about how do you live just as long but remain functional as long as possible for whatever year. So if we do not expand lifespan even by a year, but we expand health span, the healthy period of your life by a decade, let me give you the economic numbers. This has been done through auditing companies. If we were to expand in the U.S. Uh, and across the developed world, healthy period of our life just by two years is a several trillion dollar economic uptick. Okay, so there's a major reason for this. So we'll get into some of the details, but I hope that sort of sets the context. Yeah, very good. Uh, so we move now to the second team, uh, which is uh, if we uh, look at how to bring uh, a scalable solution to this, uh, you use often the term invention vis-a-vis um, translating those inventions into innovations that are uh, having with impact. So what do you see as what scientists can do? In They are the one who do invention. <laughs> what scientists can do to uh, accelerate or, or to increase the take-up of those inventions into translation in innovation with impact? Sometimes we confuse the term. An invention, of course, is a new idea. It can be an object, it can be a design, it can be a new computer code, it can be a new gene, whatever. Okay? But an invention remains an invention. It doesn't become an innovation because an innovation is an invention that makes a difference in somebody's life. That's how I think about it. And so in order for it to make a difference in somebody's life, a few things have to happen. First is you have to think about how is this going to scale? And in order for this to scale, you, of course, have to come up with a differentiated technology. That is the new idea. That's the invention. It has to be different. It has to be unique. It is not sufficient, though. And most scientists, when they've come up with a new idea, they publish it, they might patent it, and they think they've contributed hugely to society. And most of those, the vast majority of those papers and patents sit on a shelf, on a resume, and nothing ever happens. Five years later, they stop being cited, and there's, it's that, now it gets you tenure, it gets you promoted, and some of us benefited from that, but it has to do more. And that's what I want to touch on the other two things. The second thing you have to really understand is the domain within which that technology is going to get applied. And every technology has to operate in a domain, and domain knowledge is absolutely critical. If the technology gets ahead of the domain, it won't succeed. If it's too late in the domain, it's old ideas. And if it doesn't work in the domain, it won't scale. Apple Newton was the best handheld ever invented at the time. Completely bombed. You know, for all the young people who think oh, Apple only succeeds, <laughs> completely bombed. It was way ahead of its time, 
but it didn't work in the domain in which it was going to apply. There were no software systems, there were no apps, nothing, and it failed. In fact, the, the device that beat it was a little thing called a Palm Pilot. Remember that? Yeah. The Palm Pilot could have done nothing compared to what the Apple Newton did, but why was it successful? Because the Palm Pilot, while it was a small technology, really understood the simplicity within which it was going to apply in the domain. You can do this in medicine. So in medicine, you have to understand the healthcare system, the regulatory environment, all of those things in which application of the technology. That's not sufficient. The third pole of this is what your business and operating model is. How is it going to return and invest, return on the investment, the capital that's been invested to the investors? That might be government investing. It may be a private equity fund. It may be a company. But somebody's got to put capital in. And somebody's got to get that return. Now, if you think I'm an academic, and therefore that's not my domain, well, if you have an insurance plan, or if you have a pension fund, or if you have a retirement plan, I assure you you're interested in where your retirement dollars are being invested. And that's what this is. How is it going to return? When these three come together well and in a balanced manner, you have a successful invention becoming an innovation. Okay? And so much of what CEOs do at the end of the day is think about these three things. Uh, back to the health domain, talking about those great inventions, great ideas, uh, don't you think that there is too much or is there too much of a focus on the cure side more than the uh, the focus on the wellness and so on. No. And, and from an invention perspective, where, where do you think we are and where we could go? So look, we've done, I'll use a simple example. We've made a lot of progress compared to how things used to be even 20, 30 years ago. Those of us who practiced and trained in medicine 30 years ago, I'm looking at one of my colleagues the standard treatment for a peptic ulcer was vagotomy and pyeloprasty, where we actually cut your stomach, cut the vagus nerve, and shrunk your stomach. That was the standard treatment. Now you can just go buy a Pepsid or a Zantac and cure it, right? So we've made a lot of progress. I don't want to... But let's talk about chronic diseases. We celebrate statins, right? The lower cholesterol, everybody's heard of them. They reduce cardiovascular mortality on average between 20 and 30%, depending on the population you look at. That is great. 20 to 30% reduction in events. By the way, the other 70 to 80% are still having those events. So if you want to celebrate the 20%, that's what we've done as medical progress. But we assume the other remainder can't be done. And now we start throwing in more and more drugs that are costing more and more dollars for smaller and smaller incremental benefit, where we might get 2 or 3 or 4 or 5%. Yes, the p-value is less than 0.05. <laughs> yes, it's statistically significant. But 70%, 60 70% still are going to go on. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, while we celebrate those, that progress, what is it that we're not doing about the biology that's actually changing the true course of that disease process. And the only way we're going to start thinking about this is to go upstream at the cellular level. And this is where medical scientists, basic scientists, practitioners, all of these have to kind of come together and say, how do we converge? And in your uh, new venture, let's start with that, the uh, life bioscience, 
um, you want to talk about the actual uh, scientific and business model interface. Uh, you are uh, looking at bringing those type of uh, uh, mixture of basic, clinical, and so on, uh, in bringing solution for lifelong wellness. You want to talk about your approach to this? Sure. So we decided to take uh, a somewhat uh, unusual, non-traditional approach. And let me give the context to this. Uh, if you go back 30, 40 years, the pharmaceutical industry uh, would develop about 80 to 90% of the drugs they sold. So 80 to 90% of research discovery, that differentiated technology, the blue segment, was coming from within a company. And as that company identified that technology, it brought it to market. Okay? The basic science behind that discovery was still in academic centers. So when the statins were discovered, the HMG-CoA enzyme was not discovered in a company. It was discovered in a, in a university. If we think about angiotensin receptor blockers, the receptor was discovered in an academic institution, but the application of that at the basic science was developed in the pharmaceutical industry. Move forward to today. Today, at best... 40 to 50% of the drugs the company markets are actually coming from within the company. So in essence, discovery, that differentiated technology piece, has left the mainstream pharma industry and separated itself into a separate ecosystem. That's good and bad, but that's the context. Our premise and the team that I have the privilege of leading has one thing in mind. If you think about the best scientists, wherever they are, regardless, because I am a firm believer and we believe science doesn't know borders. Science exists in the best centers wherever they are. It's nothing to do with gene, race, uh, politics, or anything, right? It's wherever it exists. That if we can identify the best scientists in a particular field that we have interest in and we are gathering more and more expertise, we need to first identify who those scientists are. But then, secondly, not make the mistake of taking that scientist out of that ecosystem, bringing them into the company and saying, now come and do your work in my lab. So what we've decided to do is we, we actually leave the scientists that are doing the discovery work in the academic center. We identify the scientists, we sit down with the scientists, you have the best science, we want you to continue. But if you look at this, we want you to continue on the differential technology, we'll, care, we'll work on the domain application and we'll work on the business model. But we want to create a partnership where we actually create a strategic alliance with the academic institution and, if the institution allows, make the scientist an equity shareholder in our company. That way, we're not taking their idea and developing it. They actually have an aligned incentive between the academic institution, us, and the faculty member, but with the governance and, and oversight of the academic institution overlooking the work so that protects the appropriate from the ethics and all of the good things that a university ecosystem does, but it brings our expertise. So that's how we start off. We initially invest in that. We bring it to a certain level. And then as the technology continues to progress, of course, more and more of the work becomes preclinical talks, eventually going to development. We have not yet reached human. We're about 12 to 18 months from our first human studies with these. But in three years, we've already progressed to the point where we have line of sight to several programs going into human at the end of next year and first half of 2021. It's unprecedented in that collaboration. That's what makes us unique. That 
uh, was inter- that is interesting because you have been your company has been created two or three years ago. You have raised seventy five millions uh, capital, uh, and you operate in the discovery phase. And the time to market often is long. So you have patient capital uh, in the. So <laughs> you see what I mean? You know. So we're fortunate. One of the things I have three criteria when I think about as a CEO. Who do I want invested in my company? Okay. Uh, one always, you know, people think capital is difficult. Capital is available, but you have to be very deliberate on who invests in your company. The first criteria I look at is: Is this investor actually going to bring value other than just capital? What sort of value are they going to bring to the table? Do they understand the field? Are they going to bring domain knowledge? Are they going to bring help us with the business model? How are they going to help us grow? not only watching their investment, but as much as possible that. The second is, are they going to be here for future subsequent rounds of investment? Because I want to see them, as we progress, to continue to invest behind us. And then the third is the point that you touched on. Are they, do they understand the timeline we're talking about in the patients? Related to that, and we'll come back to this, I know, later, is based on what we talked about, is do they understand the purpose of our mission? Okay. If the purpose of, of if their purpose is a quarterly return or an annual return, then I'm the wrong business to invest in. If their purpose is we're truly going to make a difference in a lot of people's lives, then and we don't know if we're going to succeed, I'm the biggest critic in the company. I'm the biggest skeptic. That's my job, <laughs> chief skeptic officer. He has always been skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> and you know you have to be and sort of say hold the scientists true to the mission, but that's important. Thank you. Let's move now to the other very important part of your business leader achievement at PepsiCo. Uh, whereas the live bioscience can be seen on the angel side of, uh, uh, of health, when it gets to the uh, food, uh, uh, the CPG in the context of food, in the general opinion, it is often seen as the dark side as it relates to health. And we were briefly alluding before how uh, powerful has been the transformation that you have been doing over the, I don't know, eight years that you were there? Twelve. Uh, Twelve in moving toward a serious uh, shift into uh, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the health-promoting quality of the product portfolio and so on. So uh, what did you do? How did you do that? Uh, and how did you get everybody on board? <laughs> So there are two sides to this equation on the how, and we'll talk a little bit about the what. The how part on one side was the easy part. One was hire really smart people and let them shape the agenda, let them shape the how, and as a leader basically say, here's what we want to achieve, but not direct them on the how. So the first thing was very simple. When Indra Nui, who retired about six months before I retired, became CEO and I joined the company literally months later, uh, it was just one of those unique points in history when you had a new transformative uh, CEO who says, you know, we're going to change this company, and then she, she and the board wanted to go outside the industry. I had never worked in the food and beverage industry or the CPG industry, so I get hired from the outside to, quote, come in and help re-engineer the portfolio and the way this company operates. So my first six months was traveling the world. To give you some idea of our scope very quickly, we had operating businesses in 198 countries. There were only two countries on the planet we didn't have a business. The second was about 1.2 billion people consume one of my products every 24 hours. 
So unlike virtual businesses, we were reaching a billion and a quarter people every day. Right? Physically, that's making the product, moving it, shipping it. And our ecosystem was everything from the research that was done on the genetics and the DNA of the crops that were planted for us, all the way through to packaging material science and actually the design of how to put them on the shelf. And so innovation was this end-to-end. And so the challenge for my team was if we take this breadth, how do we transform our existing products so that we really can move the needle at scale? How do we add other products to the portfolio that actually help not only shift the existing, but diversify? And then the third is how do we bring not only the company along, but the consumer along? Mm -hmm. Because you can change a product, but the consumer won't follow you. Okay? Especially if there are competitive products already sitting on the market that, quote, are more appealing, right? Well, let's check the end game very quickly. What did we achieve? Today, and my data is about six months old now, about one tenth of PepsiCo's business is the brand Pepsi. Only a tenth of the business is that brand. 90% of the business is now Pepsi. Second, only a quarter of the global business by volume is soda. And it's a declining proportion, both because of the underlying business but because of the diversification. Third, more than half of all the beverages Pepsi sells are either zero sugar or low sugar. So we've changed the brands, we've changed the composition of those brands, and we've changed the proportion of our business that is legacy business. Now, it didn't happen overnight. We have this massive system to change. Took a lot of research, a lot of uh, technology. I won't go into that. The second was, what are the other pieces we can add? Now, most people won't associate our brands with PepsiCo anymore. The number one hummus brand in the U.S., Sabra, is a Pepsi brand that was created and launched as a business under this transformation. Russia's number one dairy company is PepsiCo. Russia's number one not the, in the weaning food products for children is PepsiCo. So we have transformed, I can give you lots of examples across the world. But the last piece that I'm equally proud of is we thought about it, the environment. We set about changing the way in which food industry looks at water, carbon footprint, plastic and packaging, all of those things. Did it very quietly. And I'll give you an example of why we had to do it quietly. But in 2014, the top prize, which is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in industry for water, is called the Stockholm Water Prize. PepsiCo won, my team won the Stockholm Water Prize in 2014. We led the world, not 19, we led the world 10 years ago to win the prize five years ago. Okay? And so in that process, we invented new things of how to do things. That was important. You may not appreciate, but we have been developing with biotech the ability to create compostable food packaging that starts on a farm. Interesting. Right? So we're looking at waste farmland where we can grow a crop in northern climates that wouldn't grow a food crop, so we don't want to convert food to packaging, but take northern crops, convert them through fermentation using microbes to polymers, which can then be converted to film, which can then be converted to packaging, and ultimately with the goal that that actually becomes compostable. That technology has been going on for over five years. It won't come in overnight. 
But these are sorts of time periods you have to think about. So I can give you lots of examples, but this is not the company that Indra and I took over in 2007. It's a very different company and with a lot of external recognition. So what prevented uh, this to become more mainstream, that uh, uh, this uh, uh, progress with, uh, with purpose? Um, what can government or what can other actors do to make it? Uh, uh... So I, I put this slide up for us to start there. Companies work in an ecosystem. And I'm giving you a US example. I deliberately chose not to give a Canadian example. <laughs> this is on the left shows you the US Department of Health's food pyramid. Very simple. It says you should eat very little sugar, oil, and starch. Eat a little bit more in protein, but most of that from vegetables, and as little as possible from animal protein, meat, dairy, etc. Eat a lot of fruits and vegetables, and a lot of whole grains. Right? That's the food pyramid, Department of Health. On the right is the subsidies subsidized by the Department of Agriculture. <laughs> same government, by the way, reporting to the same president and the same administration. The number one subsidy goes to meat, followed by grains, followed by sugar, and last, 0.3% of U.S. federal subsidies goes to fruits and vegetables. 0.3%. So 99.7% of federal policy is completely the reciprocal opposite of what the health secretary says we should eat. So if you really want to bring about change, and I challenge you, take a look at what Canadian subsidies are versus what the health department says. I suspect they might be that's not too dissimilar. So if you're going to bring about change, the first of all, let's, you know, we're all voters. Can we get alignment between our health departments, our ministries, and our agricultural departments? Because if you don't change that subsidy, then how do you expect the private sector? And yet, the private sector is the first one that's picked. Starts with policy. Change the policy. Right? I've given you evidence right there. I want to push the policy because, as you know, I've been very much involved. I've been spearheading uh, policy convergence in Canada between the agriculture and the health. And exactly, health wants everybody to have fruit and vegetables, but agriculture is still very much like that. So where do we go? Where do we break this uh, inability to get policy and political convergence for real? Yeah. So... I think to understand this, there's another major demographic change that's happening. One is of the 9 billion people that we anticipate by 2050 will be on the planet, 7 billion approximately are estimated going to be living in cities. Okay? Today, about 50% of the population in the world lives in cities. By 2050, it will be 70%. As that urbanization continues, and by the way, significant part of that growth is going to be in megacities. North America will only have one of those megacities. As this urbanization happens, understand, just think about the impact of this for those of you who are business and supply chain professors. The distance between the food that you used to consume and the food it was, that was produced 100 years ago was measured in yards, maybe half a mile or a mile. Most of what you ate. It then became tens of miles, it became hundreds of miles, and today, in this city, your food travels a thousand plus miles, which is why you can get fruit and vegetables all year round, right? 
Your grocery store is the most complex global supply chain in any industry. What's going to happen with this continuing is the cost of carbon, transportation, and availability of water, coupled with the right climate. Canada and parts of North America have lots of water, but not the right climate. But if you look at where the climate is, there's shortage of water. As that starts to play out, we are going to have to rethink completely what our supply chains are going to be like and how we're going to deliver food to 7 billion people living in megacities where distribution can't be done with a 16-wheel truck anymore. Mumbai, Shanghai, just go through all those cities. Policy is likely to come not from agricultural alone. It's going to come from the other departments, energy, transportation. All of these are going to have to play in it because if you go to Manhattan today, the grocery store delivery trucks cannot actually deliver. We did a study. Let me give you a a figure. We did a study in the city of Sao Paulo. The average speed of a delivery truck in the for a grocery store in the city of Sao Paulo is about five kilometers per hour. The average distance from the distribution warehouse to the city across Sao Paulo is 45 kilometers. So in one day, one truck gets to deliver one time, burning the same amount of diesel with one full-time employee to deliver to the grocery store. So as that city grows, you think that's sustainable? So private sector is going to actually have to figure out a completely different model of supply chain management, production, distribution, and the economics will change. So some of this is going to be forced to be changed by other things. The last team now, uh, which is uh, about um, this uh, getting serious about this convergence. You just talked now, not just about convergence between discipline, but convergence between sector, between government, and so on. And uh, you have, uh, and there are many initiatives in the USA or here where uh, whether it is governmental investment in transforming research toward more disciplinary convergence, more multi-sectoral, and so on. Um, and you have been active uh, in uh, many uh, policy and research body, and now in your role at the uh, U.S. Council of Competitiveness. Uh, what are your thoughts on where we are currently uh, in uh, moving toward a real disruptive convergence that will that will uh, break the blockage between agriculture yeah. and health and so on? So I think we, I would put the journey as we've started the conversation. Yeah. So I think the good thing is there is now increasing and broader recognition that the future, the way I like to teach it, is the future is not an extrapolation of the past. You know, you can do a plot of everything that's happened and then extrapolate that line. It doesn't work anymore. Okay? And so there's recognition of that. The second is there's also recognition that there is not the domain expertise of any one sector to actually solve this, whether you're academic, business. And we have to stop this arrogance of the different players where the academics think, well, we're not going to talk to the private sector because their motives or incentives are different to ours. The business people say, well, these guys are just going to write papers and not actually do anything. The government people say, well, we're just out to make sure you don't do anything wrong. Well, doing nothing wrong doesn't necessarily actually make any progress either. And so we're recognizing that everybody's got to be at the table and doing that. And one of the powerful things of the U.S. Council 
is that it is made up of over 50 CEOs from some of the largest companies in the U.S., 50 university presidents, members of the council, and we have the 13 directors of the Federal National Laboratories, as well as the director of the NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And so with these decision makers and leaders at the table, we're now able to launch a series of initiatives which are advisory in part to the administration, regardless of which administration's in power. I mean, the council has been doing this work since President Reagan. The second is we're actually helping shape where federal investment goes, right? And when you can do that, you can start to shape, because of that, how things go from there to the NSF, the National Academies, et cetera. This level, you know, dollars change things, whether it's federal dollars or it's private sector dollars. So we're shaping that. The conversation's happening. Thank you. Uh, One last question that goes further, because uh, in some way what we are talking about is... uh, uh, is rethinking a bit the way we have structured modern economy and modern society yeah. where uh, you get the, the, the business, the commerce side on, on one, and then you, ha- you get the social uh, and the healthcare one on the other. And I shared with you a very interesting Financial Times article a few weeks back, I think, about does capitalism need saving from itself? Does healthcare need saving from itself? We are currently uh, the biggest financial threat of many countries is healthcare costs. And we are still uh, having model of healthcare, in my view, that need as much modification as capitalism. So what are your thoughts on where we are and where we should go? <laughs> so look, you've given healthcare as an example. You've given capitalism. I think... It's a time to think back and say, do our institutions need to save from, uh, need saving from themselves? I can give you lots of institutions. We are an all-time low in trust in government, an all-time low in trust in industry, all-time low uh, trust in professions. And I think if you think around what the political environment is around the world, North America, Europe, and Brexit, and you name it, yeah. it's a reflection of the, if to these two things, lack of trust and this increasing divide between the haves and the have-nots. And we've talked about it and you know, how I'm thinking about my company. But at the end of the day, if we don't rethink this, you know, history has taught us that eventually disruption happens. And we don't want to see any of that. And so the question really is, how do we go back to equity, trust, transparency, Unfortunately, we can't do that by sound bites. And we live in an era where people are rarely trying to understand the issue. They just want to read the headline. Let's admit it. How many of us go through our phone in the morning and in like 30 seconds have read the five headlines and think we've got the news of the day? Right? Far from it. And yet, you can't read a scientific paper or an academic paper just from the title. Right? That's the first thing you get taught as a student. And how do we interpret news? Just the headline. The rest, we assume, is reflected. That was really my last question. What about uh, some f- uh, few takeaway that you would kind of uh, uh, put together before we open to the questions? Let me give the takeaways on, I'm an optimist by nature. Um, you never want to go see a doctor who's not an optimist. 
personal piece of advice. So it's good to be an optimist as a medical doctor. I'm an optimist, and I've al- I always believe that while there are challenges to, to, to take on, you know, in the, for the most part, we will figure them out. There'll be plasticity, there'll be some pain, we'll reconfigure. There'll be parts of us that never want to change, and it's time to move beyond that, and the others will lead the way. And that's why we have to get the different perspectives. And if we do that, all of these complex issues can be taken on. And I think technology is a tool. But to deploy that technology, go back to my triangle, figure out the technology, figure out the domain, and really get to understand it, and then make sure you have an operating model, financial or not. If we don't get those three pieces, it ain't going to work. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Dr. Mahmoud Khan and Professor Lorette Dubey on multi-sector innovation to manage the symptoms of aging and extend the human health span. If you enjoyed this podcast and want more insights, you can subscribe on your podcast app of choice or visit us at mcgill.ca slash delve.